Today we continue our sermon series called In the Beginning, and we are asking the question, why are we here? Genesis 1 tells us that God is our creator, and today's reading from Genesis 2, he tells us what he expects us to do here on earth as the pinnacle of his creation. Today's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 17, which is on page 2 of the Church Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 17. This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created. When the Lord, Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated, separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the center of the land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds, winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. I think last time you needed the step, didn't you? No, I don't think you do anymore, actually. <laughs> well, friends, uh, please keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 2, and let me pray for us before we look at this passage. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have revealed it in time, and you have preserved it throughout time, so that we can read it today. Please help us by your Holy Spirit to understand it so that you might be glorified and we may be uh, edified, built up in our faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, last week Andrew uh, said that one thing that distinguishes humanity from the animals is that we can pray. Well, I think another thing that distinguishes us from the animals is that we ask this question, why are we here? Why am, well, normally it's a bit more egocentric, isn't it? Why am I here? <laughs> um, but it's a reasonable question to ask. Or perhaps to expand it slightly, what we're really asking is, what is my purpose here during the time that I have on the earth? And the answer that we get from God in this 
passage before us today is in two parts. Both of them revolve around worship. But before we come to that, I think I need to say a little bit about the relationship between chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, there, there are some Christians and, and even some biblical scholars who say that um, because of their origins, they you know, supposedly come from two different sources, and so chapters 1 and 2, they're totally different accounts of creation. Uh, they come from two different traditions and never shall the two be reconciled. Now, I differ from that view uh, because, amongst other things, I don't think it actually gives enough weight to the fact that the Holy Spirit was there at creation. Uh, We we read that in verse 2, isn't it, of chapter 1? And the Holy Spirit, we, we believe, inspired Moses to write these words, or at least to collate them. And because the Holy Spirit was there at creation, um, I think he knows better than us what happened. And so there must be a reasonable explanation as to why chapters 1 and 2 differ so much, but also the fact that they can be complementary. So let me attempt to convince you as to uh, why I believe they are complementary by showing you two pictures Here's picture number one. Here's picture number two. Assuming there is one, what do you think the relationship between those two pictures is? Okay, somebody might have picked it. I think Rohan may have picked it. Okay, going back, this is picture one. This is picture two. This picture, you would probably know, this is the uh, Last Supper painted by Leonardo da Vinci. But what is this? And how does it relate to it? Well, I think you'd be pretty disappointed if I told you at this point that there is no relationship. Um, That would not serve me at all, would it? Uh, That would not serve my purpose. Um, So you know I'm not going to do that, don't you? I guess it would really help you if I did this. Did anybody pick that? Yeah, good on you. Well done. Yeah. So, picture one is an extreme close-up of that little section in the window. And uh, yeah, it's the same picture, isn't it? It's just a, quite a bit different perspective. And that's how I think of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. See, Genesis 1, it's the wide angle. It's the the full picture, um, the Leonardo Last Supper. It's the big picture view of creation. Genesis 2 verse 4 and following is the extreme close-up. As one commentator puts it, this section elaborates on the very brief narrative of chapter 1 verse 27 declaring that what was presented as a single event actually was spread over a length of time and this is significant only after he made the woman 
could God declare in Genesis 1.31 that the whole thing was very good? Okay, in, in Genesis 1, God is only recorded as speaking creation into existence and it happens. In Genesis 2, God, as it were, gets his hands dirty. He, he gets involved, doesn't he? All those verbs of God doing things, what, what are they? Well, God forms the man from dirt. God breathes life into that dirt and the man becomes a living being. Uh, later, um, oh, sorry, God places him uh, in the garden that he had planted. And in the next section, God brings the animals to him for naming, verse 19. And finally, uh, God puts Adam to sleep in, in what's the first surgery. He, he forms Eve. Notice that? He formed Adam from the dirt and then he forms Eve from whatever it actually was that he removed from Adam's side. In verses 21 and 22. Andrew's going to speak more about that uh, next week. But can you see what I'm saying about the complementary nature of these two chapters? It's the big picture followed by some intimate details that can't be you know, focused on in the big picture. They are very different to each other, but they are totally complementary. Well, let's look at what God's answer to our original question is. Why are we here? Well, the answer is to engage in worshipful work and worshipful obedience. So you may be wondering why I've used that word worshipful in both sections. And that's a really good question to ask. The answer simply is that the garden in which God places man can be seen as like the temple and the tabernacle that follow later in the Bible. Why? Because, you remember, the temple and the tabernacle, they are the places where God meets with humanity. The only place where God meets with humanity. And there's all sorts of ritual, all sorts of things that the priest has to do before he can meet with God, before anybody can meet with God. And if you read the accounts of the creation of the temple and the t- or the tabernacle then the temple, they both have a lot of garden-like decorations. So there's a sense in which they are... Uh, echoes of the garden, the garden where God meets with man before the fall. There's no elaborate ritual. It's just, what do we find in the the next section? Uh, Or sorry, in chapter 3, that, well, God just walks in the garden in the cool of the day and, and is expecting to meet up with Adam and Eve. The garden is where God meets with man before the fall 
And I want to suggest that to be in relationship with God is to worship him. And so the relationship that Adam and Eve have with God is one of worship. And this connection makes more sense when we look at two words used in verse 15 to describe what the man was to do there. Namely, he's to work it and take care of it. Now, sometimes that word work is translated as cultivate and and that like locks us in to thinking about, you know, digging the ground, pulling weeds, you know, trimming the, the verge. But in other places in the Old Testament where these words... So that's okay when that word is by itself. But when it's linked with the word translated care, lots of other places in the Old Testament, they're found together and they actually refer to the work that the priests do in the tabernacle and then the temple and the care that they're to take of the furnishings. Okay, by, by that I mean, you know, they look after the table of the showbread. Uh, they have to cook that every week. They have to refill the oil in the lampstands. They have to remove the ashes, the burnt ashes from the altars. Okay, so they're working in the temple and the tabernacle and they're caring for what's there. This is the, the idea that we should have in our head where Adam is working and taking care of the garden or working in and taking care of the garden. So with that in mind, I think we can say that by looking after the garden that God placed Adam in, he is engaging in worshipful work. He is in the temple-like garden where he meets regularly with God And he's doing the task that God set before him. Even though we live after humanity fell into the state of sin, the expectation of God that his creatures are to engage in worshipful work has not changed. Uh, Sadly, we we can no longer do it perfectly uh, as Adam did for some unspecified period of time. But for those who profess faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we are to engage in worshipful work every day of our lives. So it's in this sense, I believe, that it's true to say all of life is worship. You've heard that before, I'm sure. All of life is worship. Sometimes that's meant to say, you know, Sunday's no different to any other day. Um, I think Sunday worship is different to every other day. (laughs) But in this sense of worshipping God through whatever it is we're doing, through our work, then yes, all of life is worship. We are to live every moment conscious of the fact that God is our creator and our redeemer. And because of that, he is worthy of our worshipful work. Now, there are a few verses in Colossians uh, that uh, are relevant to what we're thinking about here. 
And they also link us to the second type of worship we're to engage in. Here's the verses. Colossians 3, 22 to 24. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now that's a long, <laughs> there are a long few verses, but let me highlight the main words that I'd like us to focus on. And when I've highlighted those words, so if we read it, read just the bits that I've highlighted. Obey with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Work at it as working for the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Can, can you see the flow there? Can you see the, the emphasis? <laughs> the emphasis is Godward in the context of what you're doing. You know, the context of, of being a slave with an earthly master. Um, whoever it is we are to obey, we are to do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. So that, that's how we are to work diligently. You know, whatever it is we do in this coming week, if, if we're sitting at our desk at work, or at uni, if we're playing with and reading to our child, if we're cleaning the shower, watering the garden, speaking about Jesus, preparing a meal, we are to do everything for him with our whole heart. Because... Although you know, there's a sense in which, and sometimes quite directly, we're serving a human being on, on one level, right? ultimately, it is God we are serving. And therefore, we're accountable to him about how we go about our work. And, and I'm using work in the broadest sense possible. <laughs> you know, getting up in the morning and having a shower, that's work. <laughs> Um, getting in the car, driving to school, that's, or uni, whatever it is, that's work. Cleaning the stove, <laughs> cleaning the oven, that's work. Speaking about Jesus, living a life in conformity to his laws is work. Joyful work, as we've been reminded by John this morning. But work nonetheless. It's good work. But it's still work. And that is why we are to work diligently. We're to work with our whole heart. Because this work is given to us by God and is ultimately for him, it is a form of worship. It acknowledges the good giver and seeks to work well to honour the giver. Yeah? I mean, that's what 
worship in the temple and tabernacle was, wasn't it? They were bringing an offering to God, acknowledging that everything comes from him, acknowledging that sins are forgiven by him. Our obedience is a form of worship to God. Worshipful work is what Adam did in the garden for however long he was there. Remember, it's, it's unknown how long between his creation and the fall. But worshipful work is what God's people are still called to do each day that he gives us. But there is also worshipful obedience, verse 17. You know, Adam was placed in the garden to work it and care for it. We saw that in verse 15. And while he was there, he was to obey one simple rule that God gave him. Have a look at the verses with me again. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now I have a suspicion when I read that out and when it was read by Noah earlier, um, you, you probably focused on the second verse, verse 17, um, the, the prohibition in the second verse about eating and dying. You know, we, we tend to focus on the negative. I know I do because of my sin-affected brain. But we've got to read these verses because there are two verses there. We've got to read, as it were, the whole sentence And to unpack them in the order that God said it in. Yeah? So let's do that. What is it that verse 16 tells us? So that's the first part before the semicolon in the second line. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Wow! <laughs> What, what is verse 16 telling us about God? Commanded to freely eat from any tree. Let those three words sink in for a minute. Commanded, free, any. What is verse 16 telling us? It's telling us that God is the giver par excellence. He cannot be outgiven. He cannot be beaten in the grace department. He is the very definition of a gracious giver. That's what verse 16 tells us about God. He, he says, look, eat from any tree. There's, there's, there's truckloads of them. Eat from anyone you like. Including at this point in time, it must be said, the tree of life. Because we're told that there was all sorts of trees, wasn't there? Verse, go back to verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. These are the ones in the garden. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So there's this 
amazing abundance of really good fruit trees. And in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is the context in which we need to read verse 17. It's the context we need to have in our sin-affected brains, that God is generous, God is gracious, God is abundantly giving to Adam. Now remember that these two verses are actually one command separated by a but. So as much as God commanded him not to eat from one tree, he's commanding him to eat from all the others. God commands one tree to be left alone for a very significant reason. And and the fact that God, just, just to come back a step, the fact that God actually provides a reason is significant. You know, he doesn't just say, just don't do it. <laughs> God is totally open. He's up front with Adam as to the consequences of disobedience, why he should not eat from that one. And and notice, God doesn't hide the consequences away from Adam and doesn't doesn't spring it on him and go, oh, surprise, (laughs) you got the booby prize, now you're dead. No, no. You know, that's what, a, that's what some cruel overlord would do. Not a gracious God who's given him enormous choice of, of food to eat. Gracious provision of food from any tree, including the tree of life, but just one that's off limits. Just one. What's Adam going to do? (laughs) Life in the garden with God, engaging in worshipful work and obedience, or, well, there is another option, isn't there? Now, we'll come back to Genesis 3 later in the year. But let's just keep in our minds today that the very good world that God places the man in requires work and obedience that are acts of worship by the pinnacle of creation, humanity, towards their creator. That's one thing (laughs) that these verses tell us that are so helpful for us in the context that we live in now. Does that resonate with you? That as you go about your Christian life, you're engaging in worshipful work and obedience. Now, if it doesn't describe your thinking at present, well, I hope I've convinced you. Happy to talk more. But please, um, think about it further. 
examine this passage further in the days to come. Seek God's confirmation regarding what I've put to you today. Said, give me a call. I'm happy to talk through it further with you. If you're already convinced about worshipful work and obedience, well, praise God. <laughs> Press on in it, seeking to worshipfully, worshipfully work and obey God each day that he gives you. Remember, you, you can't do it perfectly. Um, sorry, I there we go. We, we can't do it perfectly. As I said, we're still affected by sin until Jesus returns. But like everything in the Christian life, just because we can't reach perfection right now, that doesn't mean that we don't seek improvement. And, and by improvement, what, what do I mean? Well, what I mean is that we ought to seek to become more and more Christ-like in our thoughts, our words and our actions through the work of the Holy Spirit within. We serve the risen Saviour. We're called into relationship with him so that our lives reflect the God who made us. We're made in his image. We're designed, as it were, to do that. And so let's seek to do that well for him as an act of worship. If this doesn't describe you at all, if you're not yet a Christian, well, again, come and speak with myself, Andrew, and, and seek this life this life that we were designed to live, this life of worshipful work and obedience that gives him the glory. But friends, we want to worship God, do we not? Every minute of every day. In your work and by your obedience. Friends, that's what we were made for. That is why we are here.